0: You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience.
1: Topco. Business Unusual. Hey guys, um, thanks for joining us today on this podcast. I just wanted to go through and just explain our goal of the Business Unusual podcast and and really what we're trying to achieve at Topco. We're looking at helping organizations within South Africa and, and seeing how we can grow and do more business. And the way that we see that we can do that is by putting in touch with those organizations that are shooting the lights out, those organizations that are blowing up their sales through their customer service, through innovation. What we've decided to do is to obviously you know, share these insights, these, these critical interviews of these business leaders from Africa and around the world. And, and we do that through these podcasts, through our newsletter, and through our summits and awards. You know, for us, we're about introducing you to a trusted network. Of great companies in Africa, so guys, go to the platform, look it up. There's some great podcasts, there's some newsletters that you should be part of, but there's also some great events that you should either be looking to get involved in, and and uh, if you're needing help being introduced to someone, hit me up. Thanks, guys. Welcome everybody to the TopCo Business Unusual podcast, and um, we've got a really special guest with for you today. We've got Robert Paddock. I don't know. I think he's often referred to as Rob. I see that everywhere. Who's the um, founder of Valentia Institute, but also he was the one of the founders of Get Smarter. So I think this is going to be really exciting. I know that I've probably been wanting to speak to Rob for probably like five years and just sort of pick his brain. So this is my chance So hold on to your horses. I think this is going to be a good one. Um, and so welcome to the, the business unusual podcast, Rob.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Rob.
1: Yeah. So we ha- we had you about a month ago speaking at our top empowerment, summit and you did a presentation about education and the role of what, what you're sort of doing, which was really interesting and insightful. And they did a and a with you. And I know you got lots of questions about public-private partnerships and how we're going to get these things right. So, I mean, we, we can dive into that sort of stuff. But I mean, you know, COVID's hit. How's it going for you? You, you, you said you're in town. How are things going?
0: No, it's going well. Thank you. Um, so we would actually started the Valencia Institute, which is a global private online high school, uh, in September 2019. Uh, we had our first cohort start in January, and then of course COVID hit in March, and the world of online education, and online schooling, subsequently just completely exploded. So, you know, I think these things. It's it's. Uh, I'm very thoughtful when I speak about this because there's so many good businesses that have been responsibly managed and led for a long time that have just. Come into the most incredibly uh, tumultuous circumstances or, or times. Um, we happen to be one of the one of the few lucky businesses who are actually experiencing a very positive upswing as a result of COVID. So we're really we're, we're really doubling down and, and making hay while the sun shines,
1: which is fantastic but you seem to have your antennas in so many different places. Um, But can we go back a little bit? Can we go back before we go forward? Because I think what you're doing is exciting. But maybe just to talk around the journey for those people, I don't know, maybe there's people that don't really know your story. I mean, I know parts of it, and I suppose our worlds connect with a certain person who does my financial accounts for the taxman every year. His name's Rob Lee. Good old Rob Lee, love that guy. Rob (laughs) Lee! So, so I know him and your father are good friends. And so from time to time, he sort of kept me updated if I ever asked a question. And, and I think that um, from time to time, I think TopCo and sort of Get Smart have, have entered at some sort of you know, partnerships, mutual partnerships. So there was those interactions. But I think there was something else that, um, that we looked at taking our business and scaling it. So I bought the business from my father myself my brother and my sister and my wife and we were looking at how do we move the business forward and we um we, we sort of got involved with the guys that were scaling up and i know that you had a similar experience mm. yours obviously had massive outcomes but but what sort of tell us about that journey if you can of, mm, of
0: course of, so i think maybe going going right back um my brother and I actually joined what was then my, my mother and father's business, which was a property law firm uh, that was interested in doing some, some education and eventually some online education. Um, so my brother and I ended up joining that Jeep as 2006, early 2007, um, and really working alongside them to take this idea of a, of a university accredited short course and taking it online. And it was a wild journey initially. I mean, quite literally, it was the four of us and one marketing executive um, and we, we, you know, by hook and by crook, we, we pl- put, put a number of these programs online. And, you know, when you look back at those now, you think to yourself, God, how could anyone have found that acceptable? It's, you're kind of embarrassed about what you're putting out at the time, but certainly back then being, being kind of 2007, online education was truly in its infancy. Um, and I think particularly in, in South Africa, we were certainly the first organization to work with the top ranking un- institutions such as the University of Cape Town to take these to take these university certificate programs online um, We had always thought that these short courses or not for credit programs were going to be a bridge towards getting to our ultimate objective, which was taking master's degrees, online MBAs, postgraduate diplomas, and so much more. So, you know, in in looking back, it's quite interesting. We had kind of taken for granted as we started building this online short course portfolio, we had somewhat taken for granted just what a special space we had found and what a niche market we had actually not not just found but created. Uh, in this, in the, in the kind of professional development space, um, as it turns out, we ended up actually getting the opportunity to, to run a number of, of um, full, full qualifications with the University of Cape Town, being some postgraduate diplomas and so on. Um, and we actually found, this was about 2013, 2014, we actually found that one of the most difficult things from that from that process was the level of of, politic, of politics that started to emerge around the different accreditation bodies. You've got the Council of Higher Education, you've got the Department of Higher Education Training, they intersect with the university's um, registrar function. And we actually had a very scary experience where our um, one of our first uh, master's programs we ended up having the rug pulled out from underneath us by the department. We were about six months in, we are about 2 million rands worth of, worth of spend, which for us at that point was was literally pretty much what what we had. Um, and suddenly we were told to cease and desist and we weren't able to continue offering this program. It was, Ralph, it was a living nightmare. I mean, you, you know with smaller businesses how how closely you operate to the edge. Um, and so thankfully we managed to claw, claw our way back from that. But one of wow. the things... Um, I, so i mean cut cut expenses at every possible turn we ran a number of um early bird promotion campaigns for our short courses. People could pay get a fifty percent discount if they paid us right now. It was just a cash flow management problem quite frankly um and you know not to not to over romanticize the startup world it's it's brutal I mean that space for our team at that point Get model was not a fun place to be at that point. It was really tough everyone we we had to work. Ourselves and everyone, pretty much as far as we could possibly stretch, just to keep the business just to keep the business afloat. Um, thankfully, we managed to we managed to pull back from that. But one of the key insights there was Jeepers, and, and incidentally, we actually managed to to offer those master's degrees in the future. But the the burn was so real that we that we realised Jeepers actually, if we if growth is one of our ambitions, and clearly it was, then maybe. The idea we 've had for the longest time that, that these short courses are just a bridge to the ultimate um, to the ultimate outcome which is these master 's degrees is actually is actually flawed. What if these short courses are in fact our unique competitive advantage that we 've managed to prove in little old Cape Town South Africa that you can offer these not for credit short courses with a top ranking university and you can actually and you can actually drive a profitable business great revenue for the partner uh, superior academic experience and so on. Um, So we started looking around and we started thinking, okay, so if we're not going to grow in terms of, in terms of qualification levels, let's start to think about growing geographically. And of course the the growth geographically is for us was always somewhat limited by the, by the presence of our brand partners and the reputational value that they held. So as an example with UCT, we could sell very strongly throughout Southern Africa, um, but really you would pick up ones and twos in other parts of the world, just because that's, they're not necessarily attracted towards that, the, the university certification from UCT. So our thinking then was okay, we need to go to the top. If we if we want to have truly global reach and we want to offer these online short courses, we need to start at the top. We can't compromise with kind of the middle or just above the middle. We need to go straight to the top. And that's that started, I guess, what you could only describe as a, as a campaign of living on, on a plane um, for, for, for years to eventually get that lucky break. Um, and you know, to be clear to all the listeners out there, that was brutal. I mean, to, to live on a plane for for years and years was was incredibly difficult. Um, but we got our first like big break with with MIT. How did
1: you do it though? So you went and travelled to other universities or other what? Uh, festivals, summits, or how we are do you mostly.
0: Come? I mean, so one one interesting thing about the university um, system is that they often call about the they often kind of refer to the uh, the invisible university, which is that faculty who work in a particular subject vertical often have very strong ties with colleagues in the same research disciplines as them at other institutions. So the network effect of those of those individuals, even from a university like like UCT into, into other universities globally is actually very strong. So we really started there with our incredible contacts and, and their incredibly generous offers to put us in touch with, with their colleagues. Um, started there, we did, we did cold calling, we would rock up and, and knock on people's doors. I mean, all the things that you can imagine in terms of the sales process, we certainly did it. And the, I guess the, the, the mantra to ourselves was don't stop until we get that top university because the, the hypothesis at that point was if we can get an MIT or a Harvard and so on, then we're in the club. If we can make a success of that, then suddenly a Yale isn't out of reach, a Stanford isn't out of reach, and Oxford isn't out of reach. Um, And we were lucky to get our first big break um, with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. This was 2000. uh, We got the the deal late 2014. We ran a program in fintech in early 2015 with MIT, which you can cast your mind back then, fintech and blockchain and so on was, was all the rage. About me. Um, and, and we got 2,900 students on a $2,300 program, which quite literally overnight transformed our business, our business servicing students from 154 countries around the world, 24 seven operations. I mean, we had to just about double our staff complement in, 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 in a, in a matter of, of weeks and months. It was again, like as exciting as it is to look back on it. It was brutal at the time. Like it was and, and amazing, but, but also incredibly challenging. Um, so yeah, that, that really was was, I guess, part of the um, part of the growth story. And you know, you and I have shared an experience with um, with scaling the scaling up methodology, and I'm happy to talk about that, but at least in terms of the kind of business dynamics that, that's largely what 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 um, unfolded.
1: I think I think there's a couple of things that come to mind because I know that we also work with UCT on some of our criteria and credibility. And when we're looking at launching internationally as well, we had the same thing. We had a guy called Doug Pitt, who was one of the I think of of the commerce division. And we went to go see Nottingham University, Smiths Klein. And I think one of the things that comes across is is your relationships with your existing customer base and partners and leveraging that. And I think a lot of people possibly don't leverage those relationships. And, And I want to go into, you know, scaling up on those sorts of things, but I want to just dive back a little bit as well, you know, about family businesses, because obviously I worked with my mom and my dad and so we had a, a transition where we sort of bought the business from them and I um, had cousins working there, aunties, best friends, you know, you name it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, and I think there's so many businesses that get started up in that manner because it's mm-hmm. natural because mm-hmm. you do need to bootstrap it a little bit. You need to Perfect. use every resource you can and sort of, like you're saying, survival. And especially now with COVID, it's probably even more so but, I mean, um, how did you find those relationships mum and dad and 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 working with your brother
0: completely you know Ralph it 's such a good question and as, and it was as amazing as it was incredibly challenging it it 's amazing because at least in in our family the the underlying kind of value and basis of trust is incredibly strong, so never had to second guess someone 's intentions behind the decisions they were making. Um, You've got a depth of knowledge and understanding and ability to read others in your family that is just, just, just orders of magnitude above the, the way that you can, the depth that you can engage with with someone who you perhaps haven't known for quite literally your entire life. Um, that's the amazing part. The really challenging part is that when stuff goes wrong and it does go wrong, it's not just a business problem. It's like this multi-layered problem <laughs> that's, that impacts so many different levels and layers of your life that oof, the stakes are incredibly high. And so when the stakes are high, the, the impetus to, to do absolutely everything you can to make it right is, is very strong. So with my folks, we had a very good working relationship up until the point where for them, I think it was, and this is absolutely understandable. They were at a point in their lives where they didn't necessarily want to keep reinvesting in the business and taking big risks and big leaps and so on. Um, you know, we were running a profitable business and the opportunity there was dividends, you know, and, and, and again, totally understandably. Um, whereas for Sam and I, being my brother and I, we were kind of young, gung-ho, believer. that we could build a truly global business and so on. And so like anything that was coming in, we just wanted to plow back in and keep reinvesting and keep growing for the the big vision. Um, So we ended up actually parting ways operationally with my folks. Jeepers, I can't remember what year it was. It probably would have been 2013-ish, somewhere around there. Um, And that was a very difficult time, to be honest. Um, Really difficult. I'm thrilled to say that we're all back in 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 a good state at this point but it's taken it's taken many years and it's taken many conversations and there's probably still some things that we've just kind of let lay because we don't work together anymore and you kind of let sleeping dragons lie you know um but so that, that to be honest, has been what was was quite as, as amazing as it was. It was also very tough. Um, I remain incredibly grateful for the opportunity they gave both of us initially. Um, we were able to start that business by literally taking on no outside capital. I mean, truly, we bootstrapped it from the ground up. Um, and that was very much, particularly in the early days, due to my, my father's reputation, his relationship with UCT, my mother's incredible work ethic and financial savvy. Um, so, yeah, so a lot a lot of gratitude around that as well. Um, with my brother, we walked a slightly different journey. We, um, we decided we are going to work together. We make a really good team. We need to do everything possible to make sure that the, the, the kind of emotional channels are clear. And so that we can constantly be focusing on making decisions that on based on what's best for the business, as opposed to, you know, the, the reality is with any, any, um, any family dynamics, particularly brother to brother, there's certain archetypal dynamics that play out. So there's a level of competition. There's a level of older brother, younger brother. There's, there's all these things that come into the mix. And if you don't watch that and you don't purposely work on that, it will override good business decisions. Um, so we actually made the decision very early on to go see a psychologist together, which was phenomenal. I would recommend it. To, I mean, I still see a therapist once a week. I think it's one of the most incredible gifts you can give yourself in the world. Um... And so we just decided we're going to see a psychologist every week for as long as we need to, um, and so we did that we built a really good base of understanding on on, on of that rhythm, um, and then what we did is every now and then when we found ourselves getting a little bit out of, out of whack, we'd go see her again and go see her again um, so i can't recommend that highly enough for, for families who are who are in partnership you need you need a, need a level of externality some people might get that from their board and so on. Um, but that level of externality and that and that psychological savvy that that our therapist brought was incredibly powerful for our partnership.
1: Yeah, and look, I, I, we went through some very similar sort of challenges. I had my sister and my wife also in there, so that was it was very keepers, yeah. yeah, and I had a brother that wasn't part of it. So there was that as well. <laughs> and sure. you're right. We I I found that probably about you know twenty five percent of our best staff moved on when we took the business over. So there was a lack of belief in our yeah. moving forward. But we drove the business growth really strongly. But it was still that that big sense. And yeah. much like you, I realized probably my biggest priority wasn't necessarily to have the success, but it would be pretty boring if I had no one to share it with. Yeah. And so for me it was really and, and possibly reading the book. I don't know, maybe it was that it was, you know, uh, eat the frog i 'm not sure which book it was, but really, my mind shifted from me to I realized that it had to be around building those relationships again for the future with my family, both in the business and outside of the business so you know, kudos to you for that but then I mean you sort of then you got the psychologist you got this help what, what How did you come across um scaling up how did you How did you sort of yeah. get into? So
0: that was actually in it was about 2012. Um, and my brother and I went to go um, seek the advice of a gentleman called Dan Devine. Now, Dan Devine is an American businessman who had built a very big uh, business in our in our industry, uh, it, it kind of uh, what's called an online program management kind of industry. Um, so, so private businesses that work together with universities to take programs online. He had built one of the most substantial businesses in the U.S. He'd sold it for, I think it was 650 million U.S. dollars. Um, and it just made, a, made an incredible success of, of, of his kind of endeavors and his time. Um, so we figured, let's go seek out this guy's mentorship. We actually wanted him to, to potentially join as a shareholder and come onto the board and so on. And, but before any of that, we just went over to get to know him. So we flew over to Orlando, Florida. We kind of humbly submitted ourselves to, <laughs> to Dan Devine and said, we want to learn from you. Just, to, just like share your wisdom. Um and he was incredibly gracious and, and generous with his with his learnings. And one of the things that he said to us is he literally reached into his bookshelf, got out a book, he said, read this, implement 90% of it, the 10% you can tweak to your to your specific requirements, implement it as it's written for, for about 90% of it, and it will fundamentally change your business. And that, you know, when when a recommendation comes that that crisply and that strongly from an individual like that, you bloom and well listen. Um and that's what we did and i think that i think that if i reflect back to what the business looked like pre-2012 and post-2012 kind of strategy used to live as kind of a corridor conversation between Sam and myself. It was kind of like, we had these thoughts and ideas and some stuff was written down here and there was some financial forecasts over there, but none of it was brought together in a very cohesive plan, which was not, not only allowed us to think strategically and to answer the right questions in that strategic thinking, but also to share that crisply with the team and make sure that the individual efforts of every single team member effectively angle in and contribute towards the attainment of a few key goals. And I think that for us was probably one of the biggest learnings is like everyone can't do everything. You can't just constantly be having this disparate set of activities. What we need to do is think about like an overarching set of company goals, ideally one, two, maybe three and have on a quarterly basis as many people's activities angling in towards the achievement of those as possible. And I think that scaling up in other ways, one of the things that I found it incredibly helpful with was just things like simple things like communication rhythms. I mean, in a high growth business, you kind of, Forget that whilst you might have a lot of the information at your fingertips and a, and a sound understanding of what's going on, the team doesn't necessarily have that unless you create the rhythms in order to share that and to make sure that the communication takes place. So, things like daily stand ups, weekly meetings, quarterly ca- planning sessions, quarterly alignment sessions. I mean, these are all things that Ralph, you'll be familiar with probably following the, the methodology. But sure. it's amazing how when you don't follow that, you kind of, at least for us, we kind of assumed that, that it would just happen and it doesn't. You have to be incredibly deliberate. About these, about these, um, let's call them tactics, um, in order to in order to drive a high growth business. And it, it, it radically, I, I would say that if if it wasn't for scaling up, we would have we would have completely fallen over in our rapid scale up periods, uh, particularly around kind of 2014, 2015. We we simply could never have made it.
1: I mean, you say the word deliberate, but I mean, talk, you talking. It's for me, and at the time when I heard about your journey as well. The, the word, you know, discipline really came across for me as something, obviously, you know, you're a highly intelligent guy. You're very academically inclined. So you've got that intelligence, but but it seemed, it sensed to me that it was more than that. There was, it was something relatable that, that, um, and so how did that come about? How did that sense of discipline to this cause come to this? Because there would have been moments where you would have lacked belief for, yeah. You know, yeah, people would try question. to take you off the course or there's a new book or a new entrepreneur. Mm. So how do you how do you drive through that discipline as a team? Great.
0: No, great question. I think I think for me I would reflect on the fact that one of the things that makes you successful as an early stage entrepreneur is this like crazy creative belief that I can just, I'm going to put something out there. I'm going to try it. It's like, something's going to work. Something's aren't going to work. I'm just going to keep plowing through and muddling through. And you really, as an early stage entrepreneur, you take pretty much any opportunity for revenue that some, that that kind of um, gets registered in your, in your peripheral vision, you go for it. And I think that's something that, that a lot of people who join mature companies don't necessarily appreciate is just every single company goes through that in the early stages. Like you, you don't know what your business is for the first kind of often three to three to five years. You actually have no idea. You're trying something, you're refining it, you're learning a bit more in this market until you truly get your product geography customer mix right. Like you don't know, you don't know what your flipping business is and that, that kind of very creative open-ended space that, that drives success in early stage entrepreneurship is exactly the thing that will be your downfall if you keep on applying the same, the same way of operating into the future. Um, so I think what ended up happening for us is that we, um, we kind of went through this very creative stage early. We stumbled across this online short course space, which ended up actually working quite well. Then we tried, honestly, Ralph, we, we, we took the same approach with about five other business ideas, all in the kind of peripheral domain, all all in the general Get Smarter domain of of expertise and kind of online education. Some of it was more corporate focused. Some of it was a bit more platform focused. Um, But we had about five businesses that failed in the space of, I think it was about 18 months, Um, in addition to the short courses that we were offering. And to say that we got a, a, a suitable dose of humility would be a very big understatement. It was kind of this realization that Jeepers, we're not actually like the magic here. The magic is that we have, we have been lucky enough to put a lot of effort forward. We stumbled across something that actually worked. And now your opportunity as an entrepreneur is to double down, to get disciplined and to focus on, and, and quite frankly, thank your lucky stars that you managed to stumble across this thing that's actually working, driving revenue and, and, and able to make profits. Um, and I think it was that, that let's say, that, that kind of humility that we both felt from the failures that we'd had that meant that we were we were so grateful actually for this online short course business that we had that we were just prepared to double down and really really focus our efforts and for that, we realized that the thing that got us to that point was not going to get us to the next stage and for that, we really needed to introduce a level of discipline um, purposeful disciplined execution, um, careful, thoughtful strategy. Um, very, very purposeful inclusion of external thinkers and people to help craft your your understanding of industries and market opportunities and so on. Um, and I think it 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 was a, uh, I'd like to think it was a maturation. Like we 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 managed to we managed to evolve ourselves so that the business could evolve.
1: And I mean, look, listening to you talk around you know the the Massachusetts opportunity. I mean, that was in 2013. Had you read the book by then? You must have.
0: We had, yeah. So I think MIT. So you, we got we, we kind of signed 2014, um, and we started that first course 2015. I think I think scaling up was about 2012.
1: So you'd had two years of driving in, and that was your big sort of bhang or whatever to sign up one of those internationals. Exactly. And right. why? Because you saw the opportunity to scale, or because you're scared of your the insular growth in Africa? What what was driving that decision? Because there's a lot of people that. I I suppose there's this comfort that I see South Africans doing really well internationally, but there's too many of them leaving. Mm. And so your story also is like that, that little cherry on top. It's like, well, you've actually had your success and you're staying and you're driving more Mm. business here. Mm. So
0: man, I, Ralph, I believe so strongly in South Africa as a place to, to launch businesses and to grow businesses. Um, yeah. So, so maybe let let me, let me answer the, the first question first. I think that, um, us we wanted to grow and we saw one thing that was happening in the industry generally is that um, in 2011 this kind of phenomenon of, of something called MOOCs started massive open online courses you might remember there were groups like Coursera like edX the world's best universities were putting their, their courses online for free and hundreds of thousands of students were, were signing up for these things and we were watching this uh, somewhat from a distance thinking oh my word, this is the end of our business. Like these, these universities are now making their programs available for free, like, like we're dead, like surely we're dead. Um, so we watched that really closely, but one of the things that ended up happening is that whilst hundreds of thousands would start, quite literally three to 4% would actually successfully graduate on those programs. And the idea with MOOCs was that somehow by simply making the content available, students were magically gonna be able to learn and they would be able to assimilate the skills and the, and the competencies and they would get a certificate for it and everything was gonna be wonderful. And one of the things that we had differentiated on from a very early stage was what we call a high-touch, socially rich approach to online learning. And largely because of the South African cost base that we have, um, our approach was, was the technology is just an enabler to amplify the role of people in the learning process as opposed to detract from it. Um, let's use technology to streamline all the inefficiencies, or automate as much of the administration and so on as possible, so that we can give maximum human to human time in live sessions and small tutorial groups. Um, when you get your assignment graded, there's rich feedback that's, that's from a real human who's an expert in their industry. Um, so we really differentiated on that basis. And the result was that we consistently had achieved 92% graduation rates. So we kind of looked at these 3 to 4% graduation rates, compared them to ours, and we thought this MOOC thing, whilst it's getting a lot of popularity, is going to implode. Like there's no ways it can continue. But the other thing is that because the programs were free, um, the universities, you know, there's only so much kind of goodwill in those universities before you're, you have to start making money for your time. Um, so the universities in about 2004, 2013, 2014, we started to see that the shift is happening. We started to see that universities, that, that MOOCs were not democratizing education. They were not fundamentally changing the landscape. And the universities were actually looking for ways now to monetize their MOOCs. And we thought this is the moment, like right now, when they are already seeing that the, the kind of MOOC apocalypse is taking place, let's now swoop in and provide this new option, this high quality, socially rich, high touch, proven methodology, 92% graduation rates, incredible revenue returns for you as a university, Now's our time. Um, so that's part of what drove the, the kind of international campaign to go and, to go and get, these, get these universities signed up.
1: That's amazing. And I think the one thing that comes across is really that you try to differentiate yourself. So it's like, and I think that's happened to a lot of businesses, even ours. Like we've gone online and you've got all these free webinars and free this and free that. And so it's like, it, you really got to double down to what value you're offering people and understand that value. And, and I suppose th- the other thing is that doing um, scaling up, you would have found a different metric to everybody else. So the metric was the pass rate, as opposed to the amount of students or how many people, you know, yours was... Are we helping these people qualify? Are we are they completing their courses? W- was that one of the the, the key drivers from that?
0: It absolutely was. So our graduation rate is something that we watched like a hawk. Um, We, we, our purpose was and still is to improve lives through better education and that focus on better education and the result that it actually improves people's lives, i.e. they get salary increases, they improve their levels of self-confidence and so on, for us was was absolutely integral to the fact that we needed to actually enable and empower these individuals and learning, I mean, one of the things that's often misunderstood about learning is that it's actually predominantly an emotional process on top of which the mechanical and the intellectual capabilities are built but if you're not forging a strong emotional base with these learners you're not giving them a strong sense of their own self-confidence um, their willingness to actually engage in those kind of le- intellectual leaps that they need to, that is so critical in the learning process Ain't nobody is going to be going to be learning much. Um, so we really focused a lot on that on that idea, and we actually allocated to every student, in addition to their teachers, they also got a mentor, um, and the mentors are providing that kind of pastoral care, that psychosocial, um, social emotional care, um, and we found that that was just such a brilliant base on top of which to to then launch them into this more intellectual and academic pursuit.
1: And do you think you got the mentor idea? Because when I listened to your speech at Top Empowerment, when you're talking around the 28 students in their room, I wrote the word, <laughs> where's the, I don't know if I said teacher or, you know, my notes there somewhere. Um, and, and then you said, "No, we got the mentor," and I was like, "Wow!" And I was thinking, did, did that come from also scaling up, knowing about the coaching and the importance of coaching? Is it, is it, was it that sort of thing? Because um, no, I don't. Um, to be honest, I
0: don't think that one came from scaling up. That was more, I think. So I have a general. Diagnosis of the of the teaching and learning space, which is that we ask our teachers to perform far too many jobs to make it a reasonable job description. You think about a, a, a teacher, whether they're at tertiary level, but more pronouncedly at a kind of primary and secondary level, they are subject matter experts, uh, lesson planners, lesson facilitators, administrators, moderators, social workers, sports coaches. I mean, the, the list just goes on and on. And you look at this and you think to yourself, like. How is any one person going to complete all of those jobs simultaneously well, and we are going to put them into the, into the country's most per, rural and impoverished areas and pay them a low wage? And suddenly we're, we're surprised that there's not enough good teachers. And it's like, like obviously not. <laughs> like It's an unreasonable job description. So for me, I think one of the opportunities in rethinking the educational model is to say, okay, let's let's... Let's understand where the, role, the, the kind of conventional role of a teacher comes from now, considering where we where the kind of era that we find ourselves in. How could we reconceptualize that role and for me part of the An absolute necessity is to break that role up into its component parts to put experts into every single one of those fields and then be incredibly clear about what constitutes success. In each one of those functions, what are the clear KPIs? So this is somewhere we're we're scaling up. Certainly influence our thinking. With teaching, it's actually there's actually a very low level of accountability in most classrooms. We, my, my chancellor, Professor Roblew, often speaks about the kind of black box of education. Students mm-hmm. go into a classroom, a teacher goes in, something happens in there. We're happy mm-hmm. if at the end some good results come out. We're kind of unhappy if they don't. But it's too late to do anything about it. And we kind of you mm-hmm. kind of usher in the next grade and off we go. You know. Um, And I think that there's a massive opportunity, and I think education technology particularly represents um, a a, a space for this, to think differently about what that educational experience looks like. And for us, absolutely critical for both Get Smarter and now in Valencia Institute, the disaggregation of that role into, into its component parts putting experts in every single one of those fields, putting clear KPIs, having every process under management. That's another key aspect if we want to think about scaling quality. Um, Mm -hmm. Processes under management is absolutely key. And then the thing that holds all of that together is learning analytics. So this is big data for education. And the real opportunity here is to be able to track and monitor the individual progress of every learner, quite literally hour by hour, day by day, week by week. What's even more exciting is that we can apply the same, the same analytics to our support staff members. So suddenly there's massive accountability. If there's an assignment that's submitted on a Wednesday and the teacher needs to download it on a Thursday and mark it up for, 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 to feedback by the Friday, we can track whether that teacher has actually downloaded the assignments on a Thursday. And if they haven't, they get a prod from us that says, these, these assignments are due tomorrow, like you need to get on this. And the accountability and the transparency that it creates in what's otherwise very much a kind of black box experience, for me, is just, it's just obvious, like clearly education needs to be going this way if we want any chance of scaling quality and not just leaving it up to the good kind of graces and, and inclinations of, of individual teachers. We need, we need to create more transparency. We need more accountability, um, particularly in South Africa.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I spoke to um, Ian Williamson from Old Mutual, mm. I think more or less just before you spoke, but and I also did a podcast with him and they, they were wanting to showcase their level one um, PE, you know, um, scorecard. And I was probably less interested in that and more interested in the sort of um, what the impact was of that scorecard. And we spoke a little bit and one of the things that they spoke about, I don't even know they've invested quite a bit in, teacher management. And Mm. so and sort of what came out of that was that he was saying to me, they've invested 300 million. But in fact, the investment has brought around an improvement of the, you know, pass rate of the worst performing schools in South Africa, and not because they've invested in the students and not because they invested in the teachers, but because they invested in the principals. So, you know, it gets me to think a little bit deeper. Uh, there's a Gartner um, sort of um, um, report around the best performing companies is because they have the best managers. And mm. it's almost like how important are good leadership mm. and good management in the businesses you've run and, and what you're seeing, how, how important, because in the schools that they invested in and mentored those, those head t- teachers, they doubled the pass rate of those students. Yeah. And that wasn't about technology and all the things that you're adding Certainly. to that opportunity. Totally,
0: I think that I honestly think that that technology in this in these conversations can be such a distraction um, unless you unless you really know what you 're doing with it um, we We had a saying it gets smarter which i can 't remember where we got it from, but it human performance precedes operational performance precedes financial performance it always starts with the people it always starts with the caliber of management the caliber of people that you recruit into your organization and then importantly the culture that gets not that gets fostered sorry
1: i was going to ask you about the culture because i know that that was a big part of your success was you develop this culture
0: yeah, you know, I, and I think that it's, you know, when you, when you um, have the appropriate level of, of transparency, when you have the appropriate level of accountability, um, I, think that, I think that in many ways, people from a cultural perspective just want to know that you're human, you know, like you're human, you're on a, you're on a learning journey, just like everyone else, you don't pretend to have every, everything in order. People don't need perfect managers, they need real managers, they need real leaders, they need people who they can actually say, I can identify with you as a fellow human on this journey, try, trying to find find our way. Um, and I think that's something that we that we managed to get get uh, largely right to get smarter. and that I'm certainly putting a lot of effort into it at at Valencia. Um, but yeah, I've I've always felt, and I think this is particularly pronounced in in the education sector. Every single time low low performance, not every single time, that's too too much of an overstatement, but a very large contributor to the low performance that we have is the low is the is the very is the very toxic cultures that exist in a lot of schools um, and the low accountability and performance environments. And there's lots of inputs to that. Um, it's almost impossible to fire bad teachers. Um, Teachers unions make, uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation, as, as important as, as they are in some respects, they also become um, very much a handbrake to, to appropriate progress and accountability in the education space. Um, and my, my firm belief is that if you get the culture of these, of these schools right, and clearly in the old mutual example, they invest in the leaders, they invest in the managers, and that then has this trickle down, this kind of amplification effect um, into the staff members, it's an incredibly important place to, to put a lot of efforts. Um, what I would say is that, is that turning toxic cultures around is incredibly difficult when you can't, because sometimes it's just bad apples. Like, mm-hmm. And that rot that kind of extends from there, if you can't get rid of it, it's, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to turn around. And that's something that I feel a lot of empathy for, for departments and so on that are trying to do appropriate school turnarounds. Um, it's always a cultural thing first, but if you can't get the right people involved, that, that those, those toxic cultures will persist and will in fact grow.
1: Yeah, Ian, Ian said the same. He said they could only do it with the right people. Yeah. And there were some that they couldn't work with. But those they could, they could make a difference. They had to want to change. I think that's critical. And I think there's got to be an incentive for change. And I think that's probably what the problem is with the unions. The unions, there's no incentive right now to change because I think they're so powerful and they so in many ways have the president's ear because they, he needs their support. So it's like yeah. that that relationship that's... Un, it's, you know it's it's sad in a way because the thing that you you want a president who's strong but at the same time you know the unions need to understand that we need to move the needle a little bit and Mm. we need to adapt and and as a teacher they should be learning and (laughs) adapting with the new way right i mean that's got to be the the culture but i mean um you say you're relatable but i I'm, i'm not quite agreeing um you know you you've sold a business for about one and a half billion rand um, you don't have to work. You don't have to start up new things. You don't have to live in South Africa. You don't have to do all the things that we have to do, but you do. And so I can't relate with that.
0: <laughs> yeah, Ralph, it's a really interesting one. Hey? And I would say that um, I'd say a few things. The one is that is that um, that we have this fallacy. We have this kind of cultural fallacy that the that the North Star is make a bunch of money so that you can sit back with no responsibilities and live, live a carefree life. Um, so we we sold the business in um, July, 2017. I finished up my formal tenure there in March, 2018. Um, and then I took a bunch of time off and honestly, Whilst it was lovely initially, like reconnect with family, friends, like really kind of lots of self-nurturing activity, got back into therapy. Um, That's when I actually started doing a lot of Ironman events and that sort of thing. Um, I think one of the... One of the reasons it's a it's a fallacy to believe that that's the appropriate endpoint is that there's something that that at least in me, but I, I believe to be in most people that ignites in response to challenge. I think that as humans we've evolved in response to challenge. In fact, every species on the planet, every plant, every 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 um, every animal, like we've all res- all evolved in response to challenges. And in the same way that you put your muscles under strain in order in order to get stronger, like. your life circumstances, when you introduce a level of challenge, it actually ignites a part of your soul, which is so important. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for me, I started finding myself like, kind of uh, plodding around a little bit and like, you know, sitting in my nightgown until, until midday. And I was just like, this is not it. Like, I've got more to contribute. I've got more that I want to learn. Like, I'm like, so... I'm so far from understanding you. I mean, you will ne- we'll never understand everything there is to understand. We'll never learn everything there is to learn, but Jeep is like if the, if the opportunity of, of, of our incarnation isn't, isn't to, to move and to, and to grow. Um, so for me, I certainly have, um, I, I certainly found this kind of yearning to, to adopt more responsibility, like voluntarily, not because I had to, but because I wanted to um, mm. take on more responsibility, take on challenges. And for me, I guess the, 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 the real, um, the real joy of being in the education space is that the work that you put out has such a direct and hopefully a profound impact mm-hmm. on those that you end up servicing being, being your students. Um, and so for me, having been in the professional education space, I figured if I could go further, if I could go earlier life stage and I could kind of affect them at that stage, perhaps I can even more fundamentally alter their, their trajectory throughout their lives. Um, so yeah, that's where the, the idea of the Valencia Institute started—a a global private online high school. I think another another thing um, that I was really inspired by um, in the Get Smarter experience was just the sheer caliber of South Africans to compete and to and to and to perform incredibly on a global stage. We, we prove that it gets smarter. Like, <laughs> as South Africans, we, we radically underestimate ourselves. We often kind of think that, you know, what's happening in the UK or in Silicon Valley, that's the gold standard. You know, if someone's gone to gone to Stanford University and done their MBA there, they must be way brighter than us. And it's not to say that there's not incredible stuff happening out there, but we are so capable. If we would just back ourselves, if we would just believe in ourselves and actually put ourselves forward and like uh, any, any entrepreneur I speak to, my, my advice is, Start a business in South Africa, service South Africans, and then expand to service the world. Keep your cost base in South Africa. Keep your labor force in South Africa because there's an inherent competitive advantage there. We've got incredibly high-quality talent at a kind of emerging economy prices. Um, and that gives you a competitive advantage to your global constituents that is very difficult to compete with. We, from a customer service perspective, I can tell you that... Americans love us. Students from Singapore love us. Australians love us. Like we're we're very relatable. We've got some pretty neutral accents as well. People can't quite place where we're from, but they like it. Um, very warm. I I think that South Africa is one of the most fantastic places on the planet to start a business. And it's one of the reasons why why we why we started Valencia out of out of out of South Africa again. I'm I'm not going anywhere.
1: You're not no no. I mean look. I spoke to some of my friends and I think they're a little bit concerned about the future. My brother's moved to the UK, God bless him. Um, the rest of my family wouldn't go. And and there is a number of people in businesses who seem to feel that the grass is greener on the other side. And I think they, that it's just that that moment that we're, we're sort of in, but every single person that I've done with a podcast with more or less has got the same answer, which is where, you know, we're, in a very great opportunity. The fact that the government's not getting everything right is a is a call for, for this, the entrepreneurs within us to solve those critical problems in education and all those other areas. And I think that in in many ways you've done that and you're proving to do that, which is which is awesome. But I think that there is this this other thing, is is that we all we're all aiming for that big sale, big deal. Big thing, and and I suppose the question is really how do you cope with that when that happens? How do you rewrite <laughs> the next goal? Is yeah. is is probably the question I really have because and and if you were going to do it again, knowing what you're doing, how would you change your goals? Because is it about getting the A or being top in class? How how would you how do you have done it differently?
0: You know, it's it's interesting. So I think. Um, when When money isn 't the key driver um, it's it 's interesting because the the true litmus test of a, of a, of a business 's value is profit like if you can If you can generate more value than, and, and generate value for customers and no one 's forcing those customers to pay you for your services and you can keep the cost of delivering those services below what you what your income is it 's like you have a real business. Um, so I continue to be absolutely steadfast that capitalism is a very, it's a really, really strong driver for growth. It's a strong driver for innovation and it's incredibly strong. It's an important driver to attract the sort of capital and so on that, that that's necessary for innovation. Um, so I still, when I think about growing a business, I still think about North stars of business profitability, growth, et cetera. Um, but for me, what's interesting is when, when um, there's almost like the, the, the base layer of financial needs is taken care of. So you can almost more, more, um, uh, more directly focus on the impact that you're having. And of course profit is part of that, but the impact that you're having the way I to, to give you an example, um, at the Valencian Institute, we're a brand new business. And quite frankly, we have, we have very little business getting involved in anything that's kind of philanthropic and so on, like, we, you know, we're still, we're still reaching break even. You know? <laughs> like, um, but for me, what, what's been nice about the second time around was like, no, we're going to immediately start with work that is not for profit in nature, that is solely about impact. And we're going to have that side by side with the work, with the more for-profit work that, that, that we're doing. Um, so, you know, it's that sort of stuff that for me has been, has been uh, really exciting about the second round is that you can really bring uh, my chancellor again has this as a saying of doing doing good and doing well um and the doing seems well part though. sorry it seems to
1: me that that part of things could almost be like the innovators dilemma like it was the short courses that you're trying to create because i get this sense that that has legs globally in any continent in India, you know, in the poorest of the poorest, if you can create an in- education system for 20,000 Rand a year per student, you know, that's unstoppable. That's mm. got to be the innovators dilemma type mm. of example. Yeah. to the sea, Right. I mean, no, and- thank
0: you, Ralph. And I think that, right that's reasons, great but- for us. That's the North star for sure. I mean, so to give, to, to, to give your listeners a sense, the government currently at high school level spends about 19,000 Rand per learner per year. Um, and we're achieving incredibly shoddy outcomes for for that money that's being spent. We actually have one of the highest um, spends per per capita in the world on education, and our outcomes are, are horrendous. So part of our part of our mission and this the the, the, the for profit kind of work that we're doing is called the Abodi Trust. Um, is to is to see if we can we can use the intersection of great pedagogy, great people, and good and good technology, um, in order to drive superior learning outcomes at at, at the price point the government spend, is currently spending per student. Uh, incidentally, with with radically lower capital expenditure. I mean, the idea that we should be building 60 80 million rand school buildings is just needs to die. It's like it's a, it's a bad idea. We can't stand them up fast enough. We can't put them in convenient enough locations. Um, so part of what we're doing is what we call these micro classrooms where all of your teaching and learning takes place online, um, where these students are linking into a network of incredible teachers throughout the country. Um, but then you have a mentor from your community who's physically present on the ground, providing that adult supervision and so on. So yeah, Ralph, I think it's interesting and it's certainly not lost on me that I, I do think that that's something that, that, we're, that we're spearheading, that we're trialing, that we do want to want to make completely affordable and accessible to, to also Africans. But if it works, man, like... That, that needs to be expanded and expanded rapidly. The, the margins are, on non, are basically non-existent. But, you know, if you attack on 1,000 a, a, a or two, one or 2,000 rand to that and you wanted to make it a for-profit business and you wanted to, to have a high-volume, low-margin business, that's possible. So, for sure. For sure.
1: And, I mean, reading the book and going through this sort of growth and then regrowth so you obviously you, you start to realize because i think when you stopped and you took that time off you you had that chance where all your habits sort of left you and then you've had to reimagine which habits have worked i mean do you have do you have a list of the the critical things the habits both personally and business wise maybe your top five business and top five personal habits that you that helps you be, mm. e- be productive and effective mm.
0: Mm. so for me i think it always starts on working on myself um Meditation and breath work is incredibly important to me. I do it every single day. Um, I actually have a, a men's meditation group that meets once a week as well um, that a friend of mine started and it's like I think that that process of, of self awareness of being able to create a, a, a uh, kind of observer's mind and distance from your kind of monkey mind that's constantly on, on repeat is incredibly helpful as an entrepreneur we've got so much coming at us we've got so much that we need to think through scenario plan etc that if you just get so bundled up in that thought process you suddenly can't separate the wood from the trees and it's and for me the meditation breath work has been probably one of the most most important things um i'd when say do you, a week, when do you do that i do it in the mornings yeah so you wake
1: up
0: wake up at about 5 30 um i'll have a cup of tea and then i'll do 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 breath work first thing um incidentally i'm about to have a child so we'll see how that routine ends up <laughs> playing out but like
1: <laughs> congratulations you love it yeah you thank you boy,
0: so it's a little boy uh due next week yeah don't thank listen to you. Those
1: other people it's just a challenge yeah, right exactly Not sleeping's just a challenge but <laughs> it's gonna be the best time of your life i promise you
0: thank you ralph yeah so certainly breathwork and meditation has been really important i find that a um a, some sort of reflective practice where you, where you actually write down things that have happened i, I kind of force a level of accountability on myself with that where I actually send the the team a weekly note and it's almost never got anything to do with with business excuse me that's not true it's it's really about the intersection between like your, your personal life your psyche your emotions your your environment and so on and the world of work um, and so I, I write I kind of force myself to write a weekly note to the team which is very personal very vulnerable um, and tries to kind of encapture my learnings from the last week my insights my shortcomings my just like Out there, just like you like, have it. Um, and that for me is part of also making sure that I that when you made a
1: mistake or when you did you made the wrong decision in a hiring, emotionally instead of looking at the data, stuff like that, that all of it,
0: yeah. It like really just tries to be as as transparent and as as open as I can be while still trying to, and at least for for me, again, one of the reasons of starting this business is to use it as a mechanism for personal growth and transformation. Um, so I find that that's that. clarity and our, our first company value is, is your first responsibility is to work on yourself. Um, yeah. so I try to live that value and I try to share my process with that and hope that it will inspire others to do the same. And it seems to, seems to be having an impact. More, um, and then otherwise I think it's just,
1: it's the best investment you can make.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah. Um, and then I guess finally I would say that my wife and I, you know, one of the things that, that's interesting is that, um, and this was, this was actually some insight I gleaned from Clayton Christensen. His his analysis was that the world of work, and especially for us entrepreneurs, there's such fast feedback cycles. You know, you try something, you implement it, you get this feedback cycle. It either works, it doesn't work, but everything's kind of, it's, it's very gratifying, even if what's coming back to you isn't exactly what you want to hear. There's this kind of like, there's this adrenaline, and there's this pace, and there's this excitement around the world of work. Whereas at home, it's like you invest in your dog, you invest in your child, you invest in your wife, and like it takes years sometimes for that feedback cycle to come for like all the time and energy that you put plowed into your kids for them to actually start to show the appropriate personality traits that you've invested in for so long. Mm. And the feedback loops are so much longer when it comes to your family life. And he said, this is one of the reasons that, that top executives and entrepreneurs and so on, there's such a high divorce rate because there's this, juxtaposition where you missed a big hot shot at work and you come back from work and wife hands you a screaming baby. And it's just like, you're useless. Why didn't you pick up the milk and blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, the contrast is so strong, you know, uh, it leads to so dire. Um, and so his advice, which I've really taken to heart is that you really need to, you need to inculcate different rhythms um, and different expectations of what your home life will give you and provide you um, from, from work. And for me and my wife, one of the things that's been incredibly helpful there is actually just to have every Sunday, a sit down meeting where we say, what's happening this week? What can I, what can I do to support you? What can you do to support me? And then we ask each other an absolutely critical question, which is what can I do to better love you this week? And that question, we, we tend to think somehow that like, you know, at work we put in all this rigor and structure, and weekly rhythms and daily stand-ups, and so on. And somehow we get home and we just expect that it will all take care of itself. And we kind of don't want to put um, the discipline into the into mm-hmm. the family life. There's this, there's a tendency to think that oh, like that's not spontaneous enough, it's not romantic enough, and so on. Mm-hmm. And my reflection on that is that much preferable to that is to rather inculcate a base level of discipline, which ensures that the right rhythms, the right routines, the right habits get formed. So that on top of that, you can be incredibly spontaneous and carefree because you've got the hygiene factors taken care of. You know that you've planned your week effectively. You know that your communication rhythms are are in check. You know that there's a a mechanism. Another thing that actually came up for us was that um, I find it very difficult if my wife nags at me, um, but I don't find it difficult if in the section of our weekly meeting where, where where I ask her for feedback, she gives me hard feedback. But then, mm-hmm. I, then she knows that when she's getting frustrated with me during the week, that there's a time and space to do it. And it's a constructive mm-hmm. time and space where we're both expecting it. We're both inviting it. Um, and Rolf, I can't tell you, man, it's like, it's one of the most important things that you can do, not just for your family life, but for your business life as well. Because from, at least for me, but I think this is true for most people. If you've got a strong family base and a home life base that is healthy and that is nurturing, you can do anything, man. Like in the world of work, you, you're you're flipping unstoppable. If that's... Mm-hmm if that's incredibly um, unproductive and it's tumultuous and so on, it's like I'm bringing like a quarter of myself to work in the mornings. Um, so really focusing in on that home life and bringing a level of discipline, I would say is like one of the most important things you can do.
1: And I mean, you've talked about these triathlons. How are you, I mean, are you still doing them? Are you still?
0: I'm not, you know, I, I, um, I was do, I kind of transitioned out of triathlons and Ironman stuff into some long-distance running, trail running. Um, yeah. And I really enjoyed that. But I think I've, I've kind of tapered back on all of that over the last, I'd say only the last, in fact, it was only since lockdown, actually, that it yeah. kind of forced me to not be able to run for hours and hours on the mountain or cycle forever and so on. Um, yeah. And I actually found that I quite liked it. I've got some extra margin in my life, which I, I think I'm, re- I'm thoughtful on the fact that you can't push in every direction at all times <laughs> it's just too much um and so particularly at the start of lockdown also we realized that my wife was pregnant and i kind of thought keepers now is actually a good time to start like just just toning down on one so i can tone up another um and i'm still exercising about an hour a day and i love it and i need it quite frankly but i'm not it's not that kind of you know you know with Xthera like you need to stick to a a very rigorous training plan when you're following three disciplines and you've got big big events coming up um and so for me it's been quite nice to introduce a bit more margin
1: sure and i mean uh, there was one other point for me it's it's the future of work and we've got a summit in two days the future of hr but it's it's how do we i mean are you seeing that flattening structure in organizations growing or are you seeing the hierarchical structure still being important that military type of disciplined people knowing where they stand
0: yeah i think i think clarity is important and i think to be honest i think that that the idea of flatter structures is uh, often there's more lip service that's given to it than 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 kind of what exists in actuality. and it's a smaller company of course it's much easier um Mm -hmm. but you know there are these step changes in companies growth where i can tell you for sure that the step change from like seven to 30 people is massive. You have to fundamentally rethink the way that people are organized and how you, how you arrange them. Um, The step change again from 30 to about a hundred is huge. You have to fundamentally break everything down and put it, put it back together. And then again, from about a hundred to 300, you have to introduce a whole new layer of, of kind of management and executive level. And I don't know how like organizations and businesses are complex structures and I don't know how to, how to manage in a repeatable and reliable way without giving people clarity of where where their position within the company is, but importantly invite the, the opportunity for there to be constant for there to be constant progress and evaluation of that structure. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, this is where the humility and the openness piece comes in. It's like if you if you're managing a hierarchical structure from that kind of authoritarian perspective. I'm not sure that that's the same as managing a hierarchical structure in a way that is very open, very empathetic, very open to feedback, looking to co- co-create this organization with the group, but being quite clear about sort of levels of, of responsibility and accountability. Um, and, you know, you'll probably know better from being involved in things like future of HR summits and, and that sort of thing. But I have yet to see a company that's bigger than a hundred people with a truly flat structure. Like I just, I don't see it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the, for me, hierarchies are getting a very bad rap for the wrong reasons. Hierarchies mm. based on, that have been built predicated on power are fundamentally unstable. But mm. hierarchies that have been built based on competence are actually, mm. at least in my, in my estimation, the way that we should be thinking about it. If someone's earned their position, if someone has continued to show their value and has contributed mm. back into the community, it's not just about hauling power and hoarding decision-making ability. It's about creating more for the group. Those are the sorts of hierarchies that consist that that have staying power. Um, so for me, I think we need to introduce a more, uh, a more granular level of kind of vernacular into the way that we talk about hierarchies and organizational structures. Because it's not just that hierarchies are bad and flat is good, and let's make everything a social, socialist society. Like it's just way it's, it's way too unsophisticated for for my liking.
1: I, I was throwing the one way, but I'm definitely moving the other. I think that um, clarity accountability is really important. And to have people that people can work with experts in a field is really important. So I was the other way, go flat, but I realised, oh, ish, that's not that's that's yeah. a dream. So, and so much depends on the,
0: on the specifics of the business, of the size of the business. I mean, it's very easy to have a flat, and it's actually really nice to have a flat business of like twelve people. It's amazing, yeah. um, and you can do that, but. Yeah, I, I would be, I'd be, I'd be very happy to be proven wrong on this idea of a truly flat structure of anyone of a company over a hundred people. Like, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to see it.
1: Okay. Well, look, it's it's time to wrap, and like, I'm really grateful. I think we've got some really great implementable sort of insights from you, from the listeners. So it was great to catch up again. Really good luck with the baby. Thank um, you. Rob. A- you know, uh, it's another challenge. This is, this is like a triathlon, I can promise you. And, uh, and so there's that. Um, and good luck with Valencia. So, you know, growing that we will we'll definitely keep our eyes and, and ears open for, for your movements and growth. And thanks so much for your time and insights. It's really Thank been you great.
0: Well. Speaking. Appreciate the time today.